Welcome to Tales of the Departure. Welcome to Tales of the Departure. Can't do anything when it's got to be scripted. Welcome to Tales from the Departure Lounge. This is a podcast about travel, for business, for pleasure, or for study. My name's Nick, and I'm joined by my co-pilot, Andy. Together, we're going to be talking to some amazing guests about how travel has transformed their lives. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the episode. Today, we spoke to Selma Tui, who's fascinating. She's a director at QS but is a real citizen of the world. I absolutely love this interview. We've both known Selma for a really long time. Yeah. To hear her story was just so special. Her passion for Africa really shines through uh, and her willingness to sort of accept situations that other people might find strange or threatening. And she just sees them as an opportunity. She's had this kind of nomad lifestyle through work, but also through her personal life and her family for her whole life, she talked a lot about the kindness of strangers, about people bringing a sense of home. There's so much in this interview that we can take away from. You can't read about it. You can't learn about it. You have to be there and see it and feel it. The situation's getting heated. There's more people joining. There are some guns and rifles and, and things are escalating. Pre-COVID, I was doing over 200 flights a year. So I picked up a hitchhiker who then took us to our destination. So before we get into the episode, I thought I'd pass on some information to you about our sponsor, QS. So most people know QS for their world-leading higher education rankings. Or maybe they've attended some of their popular recruitment events. But QS is actually much more than this. It's a holistic partner to the higher education industry. That's both in terms of enhancing institutional performance and optimising student engagement. And one area that has seen a huge increase in demand over the last few years is QS enrolment solutions. And this is where QS works as an extension of a university partner to handle inquiries, to process applications and convert offer holders and much more. And all of this is focused on bespoke results supported by best-in-class technology. So if you want to drive geographical diversity, focused on overall growth, or just have smarter engagement with potential students, I suggest you visit QS.com. Fill out the contact. We've also left some links in the episode notes. So let's get on with the podcast. Selma, welcome to Tales from the Departure Lounge. Thank you. Great to be here. You've just heard the bing bong, the final boarding call. Where are we going today? Describe a destination that you really want to go to or have been before. Maybe the sights, the sounds, people, the things you loved about it. Where I want to go and where I often end up is places where either nobody else wants me to go, including that regime or government, and places that are really hard to get to, often quite expensive, but places that have that kind of transformative experience, both on your kind of ways of thinking, your pockets, your kind of way of living and being. And so today I'm taking you to Luanda in Angola in Southern Africa. Nice. And what is it about Luanda that's special? There are so many things special about Luanda, but what kind of initially enticed me to go is that it's so hard to get to. It's very difficult to obtain a visa. You really have to know somebody that knows somebody. And I did know somebody that was dating the son of the ambassador at the time. And so I got a visa, but even with that, 
It cost me about £500, took about six months. I had to be interviewed, phone calls. It's really difficult to obtain entry into Angola because they're still going through that kind of post-war economic and society reconstruction after their civil war in, that ended in 2002, which was so recent, really. And it just makes it interesting because when you're there, there's the amazing cultural aspects, of course, the uniqueness and the language and the beaches and the beauty and the food and all of that. But it's also being in real time, really seeing how a government and a society is transforming from being colonized by the Portuguese until 1975, having a horrendous civil war that had so much foreign powers as well involved, the Soviets, the Cubans, the Namibians, South, South Africans, the Americans. And that was an extension of the Cold War. So the Cold War in Africa, with the communist regime and the kind of democratic regime fighting, and the communists won. But that kind of pro-communist regime has now turned into one of the kind of most burgeoning economic capitalist societies in Africa because, of course, they're large producers of oil. And seeing that shape in real time is incredible. You can't read about it. You can't learn about it. You have to be there and see it and feel it and look at the visuals of the society reconstructing. And so what's it like on the ground when you get there? What's the sort of first things that you notice? First thing that you notice when you land is the airport is right in the, the city of Luanda. So you're not landing at Heathrow. You're not landing at Newark. You're not landing at, you're literally landing into the center of town as if you were in city airport in London, which I always find quite a unique experience anyway, because typically we're used to landing and then journeying in to our destination. This one you land in after a lengthy flight because you're usually transferring through Johannesburg or you're usually going further south to go north. And you land in the midst of downtown and you go straight into the humidity, loud music, people selling food, all those amazing things that I love and that I always feel so at home in. It's that comfort of chaos. And it's warm, it's lovely, it's loud. You hear kududu music blasting. You hear kizomba music blasting. You can buy a beer on the street. You enter your car and then you'll sit for a minimum of four to six hours of traffic. <laughs> this is something I've always found really fascinating about you, Salva, is that most people in unfamiliar surroundings are quite stressed. They're, they recoil a little bit. They're, they're maybe worried about their safety. You dive right in. You love it. You're in there making friends with people that, you know, on, on street corners, you're trying new food, you're straight into the nightlife, that kind of thing. What is it you think enables you to do that? Why do you just have that sort of natural comfort with a strange environment? It's a good question. And actually, my immediate kind of reflection on that, Andrew, is when you and I were in the depths of intrastate travel in Nigeria and we couldn't find our way. So I picked up a hitchhiker who then took us to our destination. And you thought, oh no. <laughs> you thought, I'm oh no. freaking out like, in the back. Like, is this Selma's friend? Who is this guy? Yeah. It's funny because it's not really how I would have grown up. I don't know what shaped that. I am from a place where calm, order, traffic, or sorry, the lack of traffic. I'm from Reykjavik, Iceland very small population, Scandinavian and Germanic values in terms of kind of 
order, the opposite of, of in that kind of freedom and movement and whatever. And I'm half Irish, but from the agricultural side, small town living Ireland, which is quite similar to the way we live in Iceland. And then I moved around as a child. And then I grew up in the suburbs in the US, which was gated communities, everything very orderly. So I don't know where I got the sense from. I guess it all boils down to like connection and being a warm person, maybe myself. And then I think it attracts other aspects of like warm people, community, connection. I'm so pleased that you've given a bit of background then for our listeners who possibly don't know you and you have such a passion for Africa. Tell us a little bit about that. I've, it's always been, I think, an interest of mine. When I, my father is a computer engineer and so we traveled a lot for his work. He was setting up kind of large scale projects. And then we ended up in the United States and we were a large group of Icelanders who moved to the U.S. on a special scientific visa to do a project for NASA, the space agency. So I was uprooted, taken there. I had some background, a little bit of English, because my father is Irish but spoke fluent Icelandic. But I had a little bit of the ear of English because I'd heard it in the background. But I was put into the ESOL system in the U.S., which is the English speakers of other languages. So you're in this like special class with other people that speak other languages. And in that class... I was mostly amongst other students because I was living in South Florida who were from Haiti and Haitians speak French or Creole French. And so it was myself and my Haitian classmates all learning English together. And from there, going to their homes, I think having those friendships from really early on, I always had this like peak interest in learning from their parents about colonialism, about Francophone Africa, all these things which I never was exposed to before. And I think that's what piqued the interest. As my schooling continued, I became really involved in the Save Darfur campaign and lots of things to do with Africa. I moved to the UK as an international student when I was 17. And I came on my own, as most international students do. You could show up. I stayed in a hotel for a couple of days. I found an accommodation that would take me. And my flatmate was from Angola. And that was really like the beginning of the journey. And we've remained the best of friends and have done kind of life together. And now she's back in Angola with a child and married and all of that. But that was my first kind of like intimate exposure. Her father was a diplomat in Africa as well. So she took me to all these different countries. And we started traveling when I was 17. So we did Uganda, where her father was stationed, and then Ghana, Kenya, all of those things. And then the story kind of evolved, I think, from there. And then the passion like really began from there. It seems like travels have been integral in your life from very early on. And those sort of yeah, those experiences and meeting new people happened along the way. Do you think that's do you think that's led you to have jobs that have involved travel and perhaps as, a, as an international student studying in the UK as well, do you think that led you into working in that sphere? I think so. I think a lot of us who were in this, it's usually been a really like happy accident that we've ended up in this sector somehow because 10, 15 years ago when a lot of us started in this sector, it wasn't really a defined career. It was something that some universities were doing very well and some were trying and some weren't quite there yet. And maybe like you two, I fell into it because I got an opportunity because of my experience at the time in Africa. There was an immediate need for someone to travel 
because the person doing the role was stepping down and they had already booked a fare and that kind of thing. And I was asked without being an employee, would you go to Nigeria because you already have the visas, the vaccinations, you've been there already? And I said, absolutely. And so that kind of got me on my first trip. And then it went on from there. But I think the courage and the ability to be independent and connect, probably I got that from my maybe unique way of growing up and the fact that we moved a lot and had those privileges of studying abroad, even as a secondary school student and moving as a child around. And I think ultimately it goes back to this idea of like connection and just, I love the idea of all of the amazing hospitality and the kindness from strangers that I've been given my whole life, really. Of course, we've all landed in some situations that have been a bit sticky, but more 99.9%, the incredible kindness of strangers. You land somewhere in their land, in their home, and they're so willing to show you and teach you, and you have to try this food, and you must go here. I really wanted to reciprocate that if and how I can, and I've made that like my duty bound, that I will be an yeah. auntie to these students, and I will help guide them and when we're here, take really good care of them once they've landed and always a phone call away. I'm often embarrassed, actually, that our hospitality in the UK is so terrible. We're very warm when you get to know us, but actually before that, we're awful. We're cold, we're closed. And you're right, you fly somewhere else. They've just shown me incredible hospitality that just doesn't happen in the UK to strangers. We're taught to be afraid if you watch the news and yet... You're talking about a sense of adventure and the kindness of strangers. I love that phrase. And I think that's just such a big part of travel, isn't it? The fact that people can connect as humans wherever they're from and that they can look after each other. So you've got the right mindset there, Sam, an enviable mindset, I think. Is it Luanda? Is that where a packet of Pampers is like $100, chocolate bars of $15, some sort of hyperinflation? Or- In Angola... Again, like I said, about you have to be there to really see this this wild economic and social situation unfolding in real time. Luanda has often, I think for the past seven years, been voted the most expensive city on total earth. So this is still a country where, I don't know, I don't have the exact facts, but something like over 50% of the population is still living in poverty, but it's the most expensive country on the planet. So... You're talking about going for a bit of dinner, maybe a couple cocktails, a meal. You're talking about a bill of five, six hundred US dollars. <laughs> it's shocking. So the average two-bedroom apartment to rent, which is not a, a ultra luxus, luxurious or anything, you're talking 7,000 US dollars a month. When you were talking earlier about traveling to Africa and having those great experiences at such a young age, do you think people need to update their perception of Africa? A hundred percent. But, you know, I think Africa in particular gets the brunt of that. We have such an anglicized or Eurocentric view on the East, the Southern Hemisphere, even North America. We have such a particular view of what we think the U.S. is, or we have such a particular view of what we believe the Latino community is or Africa. And you are wrong. And typically, most of our perceptions, and you have to think about where is that coming from and why do I think this way? It's because you've been exposed to something or you've read something 
or you are watching something on mass media, which has, for whatever reason, completely been like not factual. It's true that in Africa, there's been, there's been internal conflicts, there's been religious conflicts, there, there's been poverty, there's been all of those things. That is true, right? But you never see the other side. If you talk about culture in Africa, people often think about culture as like these tribes, these lost tribes doing these debt. And yes, that is true, but that's not the only culture. People in the West aren't necessarily thinking about the incredible Afrobeats scene that comes out of West Africa. Some of these musicians that you are hearing in like in Tesco's or when you're in the US at Walmart, but that are being played on the radio in these shops. This is Nigerian music. And it's become kind of one of the biggest exports out of West Africa is they're kind of modern day musicians. And the same thing in Angola. They have a type of music called Kuduru, really unique. And there's always a dance associated with it. It's incredible. Like it's really interesting music and it's came from the streets and developed and it's a huge industry. And they export that Kuduru music to Brazil, Mozambique, Portugal, Cape Verde. But this is the culture that isn't shown on the mainstream. You see a lot of the other stuff, but not the incredible films, music, the food that we eat today that's been so influenced. Things like Nando's, Perry. Where do people think that comes from? That's Mozambican, and it's also crossing over to Angola. That's all of that kind of Lusophone Africa, the Portuguese-speaking part of Africa. And we eat Nando's every day thinking it's a British invention. So I think there's been a big miscommunication, which is sad. But I think things have gotten better than they used to be, but there's still some work to be done. I always think we have those conversations with taxi drivers often. They ask where you're going. You tell them. They make a sweeping generalization. And it makes you realize that we often as humans look for the difference in, in each other, weirdly, when actually we're incredibly similar. All of our like our core values, what we want the best for our friends and our families. We all put our trousers on one leg at a time. We're 99.9% .9 the same anywhere in the world. Yeah. Yet we look for, weirdly, we look for the differences and we amplify them instead of all the similarities and what we can learn from each other. But Scenario. Let me tell you, Andrew, what I've learned sitting in traffic and people that travel to megacities like Jakarta, these places, they can probably relate to this. So in what other scenario are you in a car for five hours, either with a stranger or with your boss, or maybe with a boy or a girl that you fancy, or maybe with a colleague, or maybe with someone's mom or grandma, and then the driver? Your common goal is we're trying to get to, from point A to B. And in those four, five, six hour transit time, we all have to have our basic needs met. Pull over, I can see some guy selling a Coca-Cola or corn on the side of the road and we all buy it for each other. So the driver buys it for you or you buy it for the driver because we all have these basic needs that we have to be met. Having these like com amazing conversations with the person who's driving you and the person who's next to you, you're observing and spending such intimate time with each other. And I've had some of my like best lessons and experiences and memories in those situations.
Have you got any laptops, liquids, sharp objects? Take them out your bag, put them in the trays, put them in the trays, please. Have you got any laptops, liquids, sharp objects? Take them out your bag, put them in the trays, put them in the trays, please. Please? Please put them in the trays. Just take them out your bag. Don't worry about your belt. Don't worry about the coins either. Okay, okay, put the coins in. But don't worry about the chewing gum. Yeah, no, your shades are fine as well. And take off your coat, please, mate. The next section of the podcast is called Any Laptops, Liquids, or Sharp Objects. And this is where you get to tell us about any sort of three items, maybe, that you would pack, why you pack them, travel hacks, essentials. What's essential to Selma? So I'm not going to mention credit card, passport, malaria medication, whatever. It's not the obvious, right? I guess when I think about that moment before I leave the house and I think, oh shit, and I check my handbag to make sure I've got what I need, chapstick is essential because obviously your lips get dry in the sky and when you land and typically we're going somewhere either very cold or very hot when we travel. So it's good for that, but it's also good because you can use it for small cuts and burns. You can use it to gel down your hair if you have to gel down your eyebrows or to put a little bit and smack your cheeks to get a bit of rosinette if you're feeling a bit tired or a bit drab. You can use chapstick. Maybe you're somewhere where there's a smell that's unpleasant You can put some chapstick here and you can smell the chapstick instead, or you can smell it like this. You can put it on your cuticles. What what else? What else can you do with it? Is it a candle? Can you use it as a heat source? This is is amazing. I never knew a chapstick was for anything else, but rubbing your lips with it. I love like a multi-use tool, which is also like readily available, doesn't cost much. So I have like bits of chapstick around me like at all times and always one in my pocket because I just get like anxiety if it's not around me. A lot of chapsticks these days have SPF built into it. And so if you're really stuck, obviously it's only a tube. You, can't, you might be able just to put some on your nose if you're in a situation where you're say you're in that seven hour traffic and that sun is just really coming down. So it has so many uses. And for women, one of the ways that women bond with each other is when we meet in the loo, we may say, can I borrow that perfume or can I, whatever. And so it's something as well that you can share. So you can put a little bit on your hand and someone else can take that off your hand to use themselves. So it's also something that can be shared, even though it's like a personal hygienic product or whatever, there's ways that you can make it like more hygienic and you can share that with other ladies or I've been asked, maybe there's someone changing a diaper of a baby and they don't have their nappy cream or something, can I use a bit of that to put by the nappy? And it's a tool that can be used and shared, low cost, doesn't weigh anything. And I love this it. Is ama- this is amazing. And I'm always curious what goes on in, in female bathrooms. I'm actually curious what you think goes on in male bathrooms. What do you think we do? I try to think. We don't talk to each other. That's what happens. We just ignore each other and then leave. It's very uncomfortable. There's always girl code means you always acknowledge. You may not always say good afternoon. In places like Angola, you always say to every individual, never to the crowd. You have to say, both that, both that, both. You greet every individual in every scenario, including in the restroom. But even in the UK, there's always a nod of acknowledgement of both. I'm going to start carrying some chapstick around with me and see what conversations I can start yeah. in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. the You've got chapstick. Part- what else is in there? What else is in your bag? I think the other product that I always have with me talking about multi-use is either I carry kind of an African wrapper with me, a large piece of cloth or a pashmina. And Andrew, you have been tasked before when you've been in India to buy me some pashminas because again, 
very good for traveling, just like blankets and that kind of thing. But if you're entering into a an elder's home or for religious or cultural purposes, you can drape this around you to be modest on your head or on your shoulders. If you spill something on yourself, you can use it as a kind of a sarong or to cover yourself or whatever. You can use it as a pillow, a heat source, or even to cover the sun. Again, you can lend this if there's someone on the airplane and there's a baby or whatever, and the mom needs it to wrap the baby. You can lend this as well to other people. You can sleep on top of it, with it, on it. Sometimes if you're in a hotel and you question the hygiene, I just put this on top of the bed and wrap myself in it. There's multi-uses. You can use as a towel to dry yourself off if you're caught in the rain or you go for a spontaneous swim lay on the beach with it. So I always have a pashmina or an African wrapper with me. Get rid of excess lip balm, a chapstick that you rubbed all over your face. (laughs) Selma, were you a Girl Scout or maybe a nanny or au pair? The multi-use of these items is amazing. And the number of times you've saved babies or new mothers. I think she was in the Special Forces, Nick. It's like the A-team. She's using things for not what they're intended for. My father was a soldier. He was United Nations peacekeeper. So I learned some things for him. But I think the more you travel, first of all, to understand that in a lot of the places I travel, children are communal property. So in a lot of places I travel, if they see another either young or either very young or very old woman, there's this kind of implicit trust. And so if a lady wants to use the restroom or something, it's often, can you hold my baby? complete strangers. And this is this implicit trust in that it's communal that we're all looking after these children and the safety of the children together. And it's women to women. And so there's a lot of babies involved, right? All the time. And so that's number one. But also I think as you travel, you don't want to be traveling around with huge, big, heavy bags. And I think this is probably those things that I've I've acquired the knowledge over time. Chapstick. That's what everyone needs. It's all I want from now on. Thinking yeah. about my next Christmas gift, Selma. I just want some chapstick yeah. wrapped in a pashmina. What's the purpose of your visit? That's what I'm asking you. Business pleasure or study? Ah, okay, go through. Immigration selector. So this is the section of the podcast where we ask you what the purpose of your visit is. What we're really interested in is how travel has played a role in your life and whether that's work, family, your passions. Why is travel important to you? Travel is important to me because for a large portion of my career, I was living in Nigeria and I was responsible for African student recruitment, either for an individual university or then in the pathways area, so a group of universities. And so I was traveling to a lot of different cities. I was setting up operations, setting up new markets, hiring new staff, attending events, things like that. And so I'm almost embarrassed to say it now because since COVID, obviously, A lot of things have changed and my mindset has changed a little bit as well. But pre-COVID, I was doing over 200 flights a year because sometimes you're taking two or three flights in a day. So you're flying between cities, between regions, between countries. 
So an awful lot of traveling for my work, but I always integrated that with meeting up with people I studied with or a friend of a friend or someone's auntie or uncle or someone from Nigeria would say, I once knew this person that I studied with in Sudan and you're going to the Sudan. Would you just take this little bracelet over for me? Sometimes when you're traveling in Africa, in specific regions, I would say in Africa that are either quite vigilant against crime or smuggling or that are in post-war situations, you go through a lot of checkpoints. And so you may be doing an intrastate trip, traveling from one state or one, one region or one area of the country into another, and you have to cross these checkpoints to go into the next border. And they just want to make sure, what are you doing here? They sometimes check the car for anything that you shouldn't have on you, maybe weapons or drugs or human trafficking. or They're just making sure that you are doing what you're meant to be doing. Sometimes people get creative and they make up their own checkpoints and they're perhaps not the official version of that checkpoint, but they're maybe vigilantes or people from local villages which have seen an upsurge in kidnapping or crime and they want to have their own checkpoint, which isn't so official, but you must abide by it because you're still traveling through their area. So a lot of times if a foreigner is traveling, they may have a large convoy of security and VIP police. And I was just in a Toyota Corolla with one guy driving me with no kind of like expat security. So I got obviously pulled over. Where are you going? What are you doing? What's your intention? Who are you? And how do we know you're telling the truth? So I always do what I do. I must greet these people as Andrew says. Good afternoon. I'm Selma. I work for this university. I'm just passing through the area on my way here. The re- my intention is only to expose the young people in the area of the opportunities that they may have if they would like to perhaps do a degree in engineering or I have my thing. It's all very like gentle and they didn't believe anything I was saying. I think they must have thought I was smuggling maybe drugs or whatever. So the situation is getting heated. There's more people joining. There are some guns and rifles and, and things are escalating. And sometimes you have to kind of pay any price to pass through. I didn't have anything except for my biscuits or my shortbread from Scotland or whatever. Would you like some chapstick? And so the situation was escalating. They removed the license plates off the vehicle. They took my driver out of the car and they entered the vehicle with me inside. And I said, look, here's my prospectus. I'm just here working with children, wanting to go to school and almost positioning it as an like almost like a NGO type of thing, because you're in a situation that you have to de-escalate. All in all, what I ended up doing was actually recruiting one of them to come to school in the back of the car. <laughs> Always <laughs> working. Always working. Submitted an application. He got an offer. <laughs> in the end, he didn't pass through the financial checks and whatever, but he got an offer. He was actually eligible for, for one of the scholarships I had set up. So he actually got a PARP scholarship for high achievers. But in the end, it didn't work out, but we're still in touch today. That was a really high tense situation where you do think this could really go probably nothing will happen but things could if i say something that is really out of line they have guns i don't right there's 10 of them there's one of me and i have no one to call there's no 999 there's no one you can call so it's just about being authentic humble 
this is what I have. This is what I don't have. This is what I can do for you. This is what I can't do for you. I think yeah. <laughs> this is validation, Selma, of how good you are at your job. That you can turn a, a potential hostage situation into an offer letter. Like we all have basic needs. And it's like, how do we meet those well, needs? People want to progress. And it's like, how can we all do that for each other? You have something I want. I have something you want. Like, how do we just come together and make this happen for both of us? I was always integrating that with meeting other people, connecting with friends or alumni or my own peers. And in Angola, there was a little bit of work to be done. And I did go sometimes on work and I had a grip from the British embassy in Angola to go and do some work. But I'm in Luanda really for friendship and for family. What I love, Selma, is that you're such a true global citizen. You have family in different parts of the world, friends who you were saying you associate as family, and that you have a love for all these different places. And th that association of home is more about those people and those connections than it is about a particular place. What's that old saying? Home is where the heart is. I think when you grow up as a, I don't know, third culture kid, or you come from a background where your parents are from two separate countries. And then I've lived and worked in Greenland, Dubai, Ireland, the UK, Nigeria, the US. You make really deep friendships that last forever, hopefully. It's those people that they rely on you and you rely on them in the true sense. And I really value that. But how long before you get the itch to travel? How long can you go before you, you get that urge to say, I need to go somewhere? It used to be a couple of weeks. I've slowed down since COVID, like we all have. I still live this really transient, nomadic life, not in the sense as I did before. And I don't know if I could go back to my old lifestyle, which was quite literally living out of a suitcase, like I used to say, why do I pay my mortgage and my rent and when I'm paying my rent in the sky? But I don't know if I can come back to that. And it's not good for the environment. And there's all these other things that you come to embrace and realize in a different way of life. But I want the move always. I need to find out about you. You make me curious, you do. So please tell me right now. What is important to you? Anything to declare? Anything to declare? So please tell me right now. What is important to you? The final part, somewhere is anything to declare. This is free space for you to talk about whatever you want to talk about. My advice would be humble yourself don't be an arsehole like I think we've all had stages in our lives where when I was a teenager and I went to China on the study exchange and I was 14 or 15 it's a hard age to be I didn't enjoy my time I didn't enjoy the food it was I was in Xi'an which wasn't very metropolitan at the time and I just thought Oh, the way we do things at home is so much. I, I was an arsehole. I was an absolute arsehole because I didn't have the depth of understanding of where I was and what I was doing and, and stuff. And I really learned from that, that humble yourself, take it slow and enjoy the ride. 
and talk to people and enjoy the process. We all have so much to learn from each other and from other countries and cultures and economies and the way they do things. And there's a little bit of correctness, I think, in, in every way of life. And if we all adopted a little bit of that, I think we can be so much more whole and such cooler, funner, better people in our roles. Those words indeed. Thank you, Selma. It's been great having you on. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Bon voyage. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to listen to more episodes, you can find them at talesfromthedepartureloungecom Please like and subscribe. We really appreciate you giving your time and listening to some of these amazing people. Tales from the Departure Lounge is a Type 9 production for the Pie.